Okay, well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. If you've got a Bible, I want you just to turn straight to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, and uh, we're going to read from verse 14. Now, you need to know this passage comes with a health warning from the start, okay? And um, in a minute, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to get you to just turn to the person next to you and work out if you have any idea what this is talking about. And uh, so we'll see. Okay, so chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians I'm going to read from verse 14. It says this. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God." Okay, now I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and just say to them, what do you think especially verse 14 means? Just turn to them and ask them a question, okay? Okay, you can come back. Now, the truth is, this is a tricky passage, and it's a little loaded, and you're going to have to work pretty hard for us to kind of like stay on the same page together. Now, I guess most of us, when we've heard that passage, if you know that passage at all, you'd have heard verse 14 or 2 Corinthians 6 quoted basically to do with dating and marriage. How many of us have ever heard it used in that kind of context? Okay. Now, we're not, we will talk about that in a minute, but you, what we have to do first when we read a passage like this, because it's a, it's a little bit controversial, it's loaded for us, there'll be people for us, but this is close to home, and then you read the rest of the, the verses, and it's not clear quite why he's going from here to here and what it all means. What you have to do, first of all, is you have to go, well, when he wrote this letter, what was, what was the point he was trying to address then? Okay? What was the point he was trying to address then? Now, Paul, when he writes... The first thing he uses in verse 14 is an agricultural picture. And he uses a picture basically of two animals, two oxen being yoked together. This is a phrase back from uh, quoting from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament where it was forbidden for an ox and a donkey to be yoked together. This is a picture of two oxen being yoked together. You can see what happens. They together, and the idea is that if they're yoked equally, they will pull together, and there's synergy. Now, Paul is not writing to the Corinthians about his concern about their farming techniques. Okay? He's not writing about that. He's using an agricultural picture to make a point. He's writing to them because he's concerned about the level of connection relationally between some of the believers in the church and some people outside the church who weren't believers. He's concerned about the level of connection between some of the believers and people who don't share faith. Now, the question you have to ask then when you read 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, and the rest of the passages, when he says, don't be connected or don't be yoked, who is he referring to that you shouldn't be yoked to? Now, the really frustrating thing about this passage is when you read the scholars, they don't agree. 
which is really frustrating. But there are two main schools of thought, which I'm going to give you. Well, there may be more, but I'm going to give you two. The first school of thought on this passage is that when Paul writes this passage, talking about don't be yoked, don't be connected, don't be closely connected to unbelievers, he is referring back to something he has already spoken about in the book, which is that there is a theme throughout this letter where Paul is writing because he's concerned that some new super apostles, in fact, later on he calls them false teachers, have come into town and are teaching in the church and are undermining his relationship with the church. And they're bringing in an emphasis which he's not comfortable with. And they're pulling them back into certain ways of thinking that he wants to get them out of. Now, some scholars believe when Paul says, don't be yoked, he's saying, don't be yoked to teachers who teach you the wrong stuff. So the equivalent would be if there was someone in the Christian world who becomes really prevalent, who has a certain theme of teaching, and lots of people in our church were reading his or her books, and you were going to their conferences, and we became aware as elders that that was happening, and we were really uncomfortable. The equivalent would be someone like Steve getting up and saying, listen, don't get too connected to that type of teaching because it's not good for you. That's the kind of thing that some of the scholars saying are happening here. Certainly, that was an issue in the church. I'm not sure that that is what Paul is addressing in this moment. But some scholars think it is. The other way, or the other way I want to present of interpreting this, and was certainly one of the issues in Corinth, was that they had had a number of people come to faith who had struggled to make the break out of their old type of lifestyle in Corinth, away from basically temple worship. So Corinth, like lots of old ancient cities, was full of temples and idols and temple worship. And when we think of temple worship, we tend to think of something where someone would go about their normal life and then they would go to the temple, sacrifice some chickens, and then come back. Well, it wasn't quite like that. Temple worship was like enmeshed in in their lifestyle. It was like to do with, it had to do with their social life, it had to do with their business life. In some some temples, apparently, there were little dining areas where people would host meals, and they would have people for meals in those areas, and then midway through, they would offer some kind of sacrifice to the God that they were gathering to at that moment. And so the social and relational world of people had been like immersed and entwined in temple worship. And Paul is writing to them saying, you need to get out. You can't be connected into that because it's pulling you away. Paul doesn't want believers to go there and participate in meals. And so when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, don't be yoked, don't be hitched, don't be connected, he is referring to Christians in Corinth who have come to faith but are still taking part in temple worship and idol worship. Their social and their business worlds are still entwined in this old lifestyle. Now I think that's what verse 14 is talking about. That said, whichever way you read this passage, whichever kind of like, uh, ap- well, whichever kind of contextual uh, conclusion you come to, Paul is clearly saying the same. The principle is the same. Do not be connected to an unbeliever to such an extent that they start to pull you away from God, away from the life giver, away from joy, and back into an old lifestyle of idolatry and compromise. That's what he's saying. Whether you think this is to do with false teachers or whether you think this is to do with temple worship, basically he's saying the principle is don't be connected to such a degree 
that this relationship will pull you away from God, away from the one who's brought life to you, and you get dragged back into old relationships, old patterns, old habits, old lifestyles, idolatry, and away from the life giver. That's what he's arguing for here, and that's what I think 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 is saying. Now, three things I think he wants us to understand when it comes to the issue of idolatry. Okay? Now, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but just so you're clear, all of us are prone towards idolatry. It's not that we necessarily go to a temple, it's not necessarily that we bow down to a statue, but there within us we are prone to look to other things other than Jesus for the things that only Jesus can give us. That's called idolatry. If we start to put other things in God's place, if we start to sacrifice to those things, if we start to bow down to those things, if those things become the central focus of our lives, if we think if we can get a bit more of those things, that's a sure sign that something has become an idol. And all of us are prone to idolatry. Three things I think Paul wants us to understand in this passage when it comes to idolatry. First of all this, relationships affect us. The reason he says don't be yoked is because when you are closely, intimately connected to someone, you are pulled one way or the other. For good or for bad, it's never neutral. The picture agriculturally is if you, if you hook up two animals and they're equally yoked, their power is going to be increased. In a sense, their effectiveness increased. If you hook them up and they're unequal, it doesn't work. It's diminished. That's exactly what happens in a relationship. If you connect to good people who believe good things, they will help you. If you connect to people who don't believe good things, who are not connected to Jesus and you spend all your time, they will pull you somewhere else. Everybody, that works for everyone, okay? If you think, well, I can handle it, no, you can't. Because everyone is wired this way. So recently, I went running with Charles. You know, Charles... And we went running, we were away together with the kind of leadership team, and we went running each morning while we were away, okay? Now, if you go running with someone, the problem is if you've never run with them, you don't know how fit they are, okay? Now, me and Charles are about the same age, so all things are, okay. So it was all pretty, like, I was pretty confident. Okay, so we set out early in the morning to go running, it's about three miles. I know within about 10 seconds, he wants to run faster than I do, okay? And he's not, he's not getting the signals, you know, I'm just drawing back. He's still pressing on. And basically, we run. And, and, we, and he pulls me faster than I necessarily want to run on my own. It's like you're somehow slightly connected. And run, he pulls you quicker. We don't run together anymore. Okay? In fact, he's not working for the church anymore. No, that's not true. Close connections pull us, is what Paul is saying. You get yoked. You get connected. It's true for everyone. Now, does that mean we withdraw from friendships with people who don't believe in Jesus? No. It doesn't mean that. Jesus clearly is the model of a a Savior who steps into an unbelieving world. So this is not a plea for somehow stepping out in some kind of, you know, Christian kind of huddle. Not that at all. Paul is saying, avoid relational connections which pull you away from God. Any relationship which draws you 
into giving your heart, giving your affections elsewhere. In other words, which lead you towards idolatry. So let's give some examples. So if you are in a workplace and the idol in your workplace is success and money. In other words, you know the culture of your workplace is if I can just get higher, if I can just earn more, and basically people will compromise anything to do that. They will sacrifice their children to do that. If you know that is the culture of this workplace and you know you find it intoxicating yourself, you probably want to consider whether that is an appropriate place for you to work. Now, I have friends of mine who work in those kind of workplaces, and they're fine. They don't find it a problem. They're not prone to it themselves. But other people find it a real problem. If you know it, it pulls you all the time. You may want to consider, is that the right place for you? Let's say you used to indulge in a kind of lifestyle where on a Friday night you go out drinking. And basically, you'd find any kind of pleasure you want. The idol in that is hedonism. If you find staying connected to your old friends who used to do that, and they want to pull you into that, and you feel pulled back into that lifestyle, you probably should consider getting out of some of that connection. Does that mean we say goodbye to all our unbelieving friends? No, it doesn't. It means be very wise about the connection you make with people, because connections, relationships, pull you one way or another. Is this passage about dating and marriage? No, it's not. Can it be applied to dating and marriage? Yes, it can. He is not addressing the issue of marriage. However, the principle is the same. Okay? The Bible clearly teaches, and I know this is close to home, but the Bible clearly teaches that a believer should marry a believer. Okay, you see that principle throughout the New Testament, and you see it in 1 Corinthians 7 in his previous uh, letter. Paul says this, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies... She is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In other words, they're married, he dies, she can marry again, but she needs to marry someone else who's a believer. That seems to be pretty straightforward. Now, does that mean that if you're in a situation where you're a believer and your spouse isn't, that somehow you should separate? No, the Bible also in that same chapter says you should stay together. So it doesn't mean you should divorce or separate. It means you should stay together and honor that relationship. But what it does mean is that it is difficult for a believer and unbeliever because there is a huge difference fundamentally between someone who has said yes to Jesus and someone who has said, I'm going to reject Jesus. Fundamentally, there is a massive difference difference. It doesn't mean that unbelievers aren't great people. It doesn't mean we shouldn't love them. It doesn't mean we absolutely. Jesus is the friend of sinners. We are all sinners. It just means that fundamentally when you become a Christian, something huge has happened. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. It also doesn't mean, by the way, that if a Christian and an unbeliever are married, that that marriage isn't going to work. It could work. It doesn't mean that's not going to work. What it means is that you will have tension in that marriage. Now, every marriage has tension already, by the way. Okay? But you will have another level of tension. Because for one of you, you're going to base your life basically centered on that Jesus is Lord, and another is going to center their life around, well, I don't believe in Jesus. 
So fundamentally, at the very root of who you are, you have two completely different philosophies of life. And you're going to find it difficult to both have intimacy and closeness as a married couple together and to retain intimacy and closeness with Jesus. There will be tension and it will be hard. And that is why the Bible says a believer should marry a believer. So if you are dating, okay, I want to suggest to you, you wait till you meet someone who's a Christian and then that's the person or that's the field you want to date in. Jesus says in the Gospels, truly I say to you, he says that phrase 76 times. Whenever he says that, what he's saying is, I understand how life works. I know how this works. I see things you can't see. If you're a parent, occasionally you'll say to your kids, I, I do know some things. I actually know how this works. I, I've got, I can see things you can't see. I have foreknowledge you don't have. I have experience. When Jesus says, truly, I say to you, he's saying, I know some things you don't know. So Jesus is saying, Paul is saying, the Bible says, pray for, look for, wait for a spouse who is a believer. Relationships pull us one way or the other. Now, that means if you're in a relationship right now or if you're married to someone who's not a Christian, we love you. We're not judging you. You're going to have to make that work. But if you're not there and you've still got the choice, the Bible says choose a believer. Relationships pull us. That's why it is so important if you're a Christian and you're on the edge of a church to get in a church and not let live on the kind of periphery all the time. Because the, the Bible is really clear. Relationships will pull you one way or the other. So if you want to go after Jesus, you've got to find some other people who are going after him as well. So you have to get in, you have to attend, you have to find a group, you have to serve, and you surround yourself with people who are like-minded who will help you. That's how this works. Don't just step out of an old life, step into a new community. You have to do that. So relationships pull us. Here's the second thing I think he wants us to understand in this passage, particularly to do with idolatry. This. In life, in the end, there are only two options. There are only two options. What Paul does is he teaches in this passage that there is an enormous contrast and difference between a believer and someone who's not a believer. That's why from verse 14 to verse 16, he, he contrasts all these different things. So he says this, there's light and darkness, there's righteousness and wickedness, there's Christ and Belial, which is another way for Satan, and there's the temple of God and idols. He is drawing a contrast. Now, sometimes we like to minimize the contrast between Christians and, and people who aren't Christians. But actually, there's a huge difference. It doesn't mean, again, that unbelievers are bad people. You can meet some brilliant people who aren't Christ followers. But fundamentally, there is a massive difference. Something huge has happened if you've become a Christian. So Ephesians, it says, you were dead and now you're alive. I would suggest you cannot get a particularly bigger, starker contrast than death and life. You were dead and now you're alive. Effectively, Paul's saying there is an enormous difference between someone who says yes to Jesus and someone who rejects Jesus. He draws the contrast. Why does he draw the contrast? Let me say, because this. Maybe because he wants to show how inappropriate it is for believers to indulge in this kind of lifestyle. But I reckon fundamentally the reason he says there's a huge contrast is because idolatry will say to you, 
You can both have Jesus and the idol. You see, often idolatry, which we all practice, the lie that comes with it is that it's not that you have to reject Jesus. You can keep Jesus. You just need to accommodate some other things as well. Now, in effect, you are rejecting Jesus (laughs) because you're saying to Jesus, you're not everything I need. But the lie that comes with any kind of idolatry like that, and idolatry is behind every sin, the lie that comes is you can have Jesus and these other things, these other first loves. So you can love money and Jesus. You can be desperate for success and look for success as the thing that will satisfy your soul and have Jesus. And idolatry says you can have both. Paul and Jesus and the rest of the Bible says you can't have both. They are mutually exclusive. Jesus doesn't give us the choice to have him and something else. In other words, it's like you either follow or you don't. In the end. So this is what Jesus says in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise. What's he saying? He's saying you can't have both. You think you can, but you can't. You cannot serve. That word for serve is like the word you get when a, when a servant would bow down to a king and give solemn kind of oaths of obedience to a king. It's that kind of sense of slavery. You cannot serve God and money. It's one or the other. The idol will tell you you can. The Bible says you cannot. You can't have both. In other words, for those of us who are Christians or those of us who are investigating Christianity, in the end, it's either in or out. Now, I understand why you're searching. You go through this season where you're weighing up and wondering, is this real? I get that. But there's a point where you come to a decision And Jesus says, I'm either who I say I am, and you accept me as who I say I am, or I'm not. There are only two options. Here's the third thing I think Paul wants us to understand. The key to dealing with idols in our hearts is you have to replace the idol with a promise. You replace the idol with a promise. It's no good just by willpower going, well, I'm not going to give in to that desire to have more money. Or I'm not going to... That doesn't work very well, if you've noticed that. You see, in this passage, Paul sets out... He says, don't be yoked. Relationships pull you. And then he says, look, what has light got to do with darkness? What has wickedness got to do with righteousness? He draws all these contrasts. And then the next thing he does is he quotes three different promises from the Old Testament. So verse 16, 17, 18. So it says, as God has said... I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Verse 17, therefore, come out from them and be separate, said the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Verse 18, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, verse 16, for those of you taking notes, he quotes Ezekiel 37. Verse 17, Isaiah 52. Verse 18, Jeremiah 31 and 2 Samuel 7. Now, these are hand-picked by him. And they are all Old Testament promises referring to God's promise to bring his people out of exile, out of captivity in Babylon, and back into Jerusalem. In other words, all these promises refer back into history 
where God promises to bring people who are exiled home. They all refer to something that happened in history, but they don't just refer to that. Just like lots of Old Testament pictures and scenarios, they point towards a far greater story and a far bigger issue. In other words, that one day, the exile of everyone, God promises to end. Those of us who have been banished, who have sinned, who are exiled from his presence, God says one day, one is coming who will end everybody's exile. Everybody can become home and everyone can be rescued. Tom Wright, who's a a scholar, an Anglican scholar, says this. The real exile was not the exile in Babylon. It was the exile of death itself. And through the Messiah's own death and resurrection, this exile has been undone. It is now time for God's people to come home to him, home from the land of sin and death. Now, why does Paul, in the middle of writing to people, in caught in sin, slipping into idolatry, suddenly write about promises about God returning people from exile. Why? Because Paul knows the key to a life that is free from idolatry and is free, free from sin, is a heart convinced that God's goodness is always better than anything any idol can offer you. The key, I'm going to say this, the key to a heart that's free from idolatry and getting free of sin and free from old patterns of behavior is a heart that hasn't been told you've got to do these things, these 10 rules, religious rules. That doesn't work. If you've been in a church which teaches you religious rules, it doesn't work. And it's not how the Bible does it. The key is a heart convinced that God is better, better, better. And his promises are higher and further and more fulfilling than anything any idol or sin can offer you. That's the key. That's why in this passage, when he talks about idolatry and people slipping back into it, he doesn't just he doesn't berate them. He says, listen, do you understand what's happened to you? You are exiled. Now you've come home. And the, there's all these promises about how good he is. Do you get this? Because if you get this, you won't slip back into that. That's what he's saying. He knows that if we do not find our satisfaction in God, we will always look elsewhere. That's why you should never go food shopping when you're hungry. Okay? Because your food bill will be astronomical. Now, our souls are permanently hungry. Have you noticed this? We are always looking for something to satisfy us. And if we don't find it in Him, we look elsewhere. So that's why he's saying, listen, there's all these promises. You have to understand the promises. What do we do? We replace the idol with a promise. As I was writing this and thinking about this, in my picture I could see like, imagine a landscape from it. Just go with me for a minute. A landscape, a massive landscape. You're outside and all you can see is mist. You know there's other stuff out there, but you can't really see. You can see the kind of shadows and the shapes, but it's basically mist. And as you go through the passage, it's like the lift, all the mist starts to lift. You know, the wind starts to blow, and you can see the, the mist starting to clear. And gradually as it starts to clear, what you find is that you're in a valley, and you're surrounded by huge summits and mountains. And it's this incredible place of beauty. But you had no idea when you were in the mist. And when you're reading this passage, it's like Paul is saying, I want to blow away the clouds. I want to show you what things really look like, rather than what you think they might look like. 
and what it really is that's out there rather than what you kind of like can sort of see. So he's saying, look, I want you to understand what your relationships are really all about. Your relationships are not innocent. They are critical. Choose wisely who your friends are. Choose wisely who you date. Choose very wisely who you marry. They're not just like inconsequential. They are critical to the trajectory of your life. He's blowing away the mist, in other words. I want you to see what it really looks like. Yes, you might think this person looks amazing. They're not a Christian. But by the way, you are storing up a lifetime of tension and difficulty. I want you to blow away all the clouds. He's saying, look, I want you to understand that idolatry is empty. It's tempting, but in the end, it never gives you what you're after. The idol can't do it. You can bow down to success. You can climb the ladder as high as you want. But by the way, you never get high enough. You never earn enough. Because the idol doesn't do it for you. Whatever the idol is. And Paul is saying, I want to clear away the myth so you understand just how good he is. And what his promises are like over your life. And I want you to live your life in the shadow of the promises. That's why in verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, since we have these promises... Let's purify ourselves. Let's live life right. Why? Because I want you to live in the shadow of the goodness of God. I want you to understand the promises which surround your life. You were in exile and captivity, utterly cut off, and now you've come home. Can you remember how desperate it was to be cut off? Now you've come home. You've been brought back, and now you live in the shadow of his promises. How good is he? How high are the peaks, in other words? Three really quick ones. Psalm 84. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Here's the first. Here's the second one. Surely, Psalm 23, goodness and love will follow me all the days. Every day he comes after me with something good. All the days of my life. Romans 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. It doesn't mean everything is nice. It means even in the storm, he somehow is going to work it good for me. Somehow. How high are the peaks, he's saying. Do you want to deal with the idol? See the peaks. Three things as we close. First of all this. Sometimes the mist just rolls in and you can't see anymore. You've been in that kind of setting and you just you can't see. When the mist isn't there, you need to learn and trust that the, you need to get to know the peaks. And when the mist rolls in, you need to trust they're still there. That you are still where he said you were. You're not in some kind of valley on your own. You're surrounded. Second thing is this. Sometimes we wonder, can this be true for me? It's true for this person, that's fine. But can it really be true for me? Right at the start of this letter, Paul writes and says this. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. It has nothing to do with you. When he did what he did, God says, I will fulfill every promise I ever made. It's guaranteed. It's a done deal. And then we wonder, could God welcome someone like me who has maybe said yes to you, Jesus, but really I drifted right off into this other world. Can you really welcome someone like me? You have no idea what I've done. Listen, God specializes in people like you. God specializes in the exiles. God specializes in the prodigals. 
That's why he's here. Let's stand and we're going to pray.